I Take History with My Coffee podcast, episode 16, The New Logic. The unfamiliar manner of speech gets very much in the way of our achieving understanding, as well as different meanings these words very often have when a given word is used with a particular meaning, only in that particular manner of speech. Indeed, each man is as well stocked with these words as he is with sense. Pierre Abelard, the prologue to Sic et Non, 12th century. Welcome back to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast, and thank you for continuing our exploration of the early modern period. Pierre Abelard was born in 1079 in Le Palais, east of Nantes, in the Duchy of Brittany, the eldest son of minor nobility. As a boy, he showed a keen intellect and his father encouraged him to study the liberal arts. He particularly excelled at debating. He turned his back on his inheritance and knighthood to study philosophy. Abelard was an iconoclast. He didn't shy away from challenging the establishment. He was brilliant and innovative with wit and charm to boot. He was a genius, and he knew it. He earned the displeasure of many with his arrogance, and controversy followed him everywhere. He was a contentious student, ridiculing his professors, reveling in his brilliance, and desiring to show that he was better than they were. Regarding one of his masters, he remarked, quote, On several occasions, I proved myself his superior in debate. End quote. The Historia Calamitatum, or the Story of My Misfortunes, is Abelard's autobiography, written as a letter to an unnamed friend. He does not hold back his sarcasm or contempt for those he perceives as less gifted. We know much about his life from this work and his prolific correspondence. His first teacher was the French logician Rosalind of Campanet, but Abelard hardly ever mentions him, perhaps because Rosalind had been condemned as a heretic in 1092. In 1100, he arrived in Paris to study under William of Champeaux, the scholasticus of the cathedral school at Notre Dame. Abelard incurred the ire of his master, 
such that William made sure that the young man could not teach in the diocese of Paris. Between 1102 and 1105, Abelard set up his own school, first in Melon and then at Corbeil. Suffering a breakdown from stress and overwork, he returned home to his parents to recover. But by 1108, he had returned to Paris to weigh in on the great debate of the medieval world, the debate over the nature of universals. If you recall from the previous episode and our review of Aristotle's categories, we can group things by specific properties that things have in common. These categories are the universals, dog, cat, man, red, yellow, blue. One of the crucial questions was on what basis we group things. How do we define dogness in which to place individual dogs, Fido, Rover, etc.? Most medieval thinkers at this time, like Abelard's old master, William of Champeaux, were realists. Yet we need to be careful and not think of the modern concept of realism. Medieval realism was based on Plato's realm of forms. Realists argued that universals exist in reality outside the mind, that there is a definite thing as dogness, which exists whether there are individual dogs or not. Abelard and his other teacher, Rosalind, fell in on the other side of the debate. They were nominalists. They argued that universals are simply names we call similar things. Universals are human constructs and don't have any existence outside of the mind. This, of course, is a simplification, and the debate about universals was much more complex. But the debate was important because many felt it struck at the heart of Christian theology. Many argued that the nominalists' side undermined such doctrines as the Trinity. And this was the heresy Rosalind had been accused of. This would also be fodder for Abelard's enemies throughout his life. In 1113, he went to study theology under Anselm of Leon who had the reputation of being the greatest teacher in France. His most significant contribution was the Glossa Ordinaria, interlinear and marginal glosses on scripture. The work was more likely a collaboration of Anselm and his followers, and it would be frequently reprinted. Significantly, 
it represented a new effort to present individual interpretations of scripture by the church fathers and early medieval commentators. It was done in a format that was easy to reference and readily accessible. It would be the basis of future medieval handbooks on theology. But his teaching methods were old-fashioned. He taught solely by the lectio, lecture, delivering expositions on approved authors to passive but attentive students. Of course, this was not good enough for the brash young Abelard, who sought to question everything. A falling out was inevitable, and Abelard returned to Paris. Now, before Abelard appeared on the scene, two monks from the monastery of Beck in Normandy, France, would signal a shift in medieval thinking and the medieval approach to learning. Both became archbishops of Canterbury in England. First, there was Lanfranc of Beck. Referring to the epistles of St. Paul, Lanfranc sought to show that Paul used the same methods of logic and argumentation as Aristotle and Boethius. After Lanfranc died in 1089, he was succeeded by his fellow monk, Anselm of Canterbury, a different Anselm than Abelard's teacher. The two are often conflated. Anselm, himself a skilled logician, saw that logic could be applied to understanding God's revelation. For Anselm, faith was the starting point. Quoting the prophet Isaiah in the Bible, quote, If you have no faith, you will not be able to understand. A proper Christian's duty was to seek to explain belief rationally and address objections to faith with rationality. But faith was the key word. On this point, Abelard would set the establishment on its head. Abelard took the opposite view of Anselm of Canterbury. Reason was supreme. Confidence in authority can only be gained by careful, critical evaluation. It's meaningless, Abelard suggested, to try and persuade pagans or other non-believers they were wrong. They could fall back on their faith, that theirs was the true faith. In his work, Sic et Non, Yes and No, Abelard provides us with a blueprint for this critical analysis. The, quote, first key to wisdom is defined, of course, as assiduous or frequent questioning, end quote. It begins with doubt. Because, quote, through doubting, we come to questioning, and through questions, we perceive the truth, end quote. 
Abelard doesn't directly reject the idea of authority. He acknowledges that there are disagreements among the church fathers and in scripture. This is why critical analysis is essential. It was necessary to reconcile those differences. In doing this, one takes a look at the text or passage and must consider several possibilities, such as whether the statements are a writer's opinion, realizing that different writers use language differently, understanding if there were errors in copying or translation, or references have been falsely attributed to authoritative authors. Once he outlines this blueprint for evaluation, Abelard then collects a series of 158 questions related to philosophy and theology. The first five questions are, must human faith be completed by reason or not? Does faith deal only with unseen things or not? Is there any knowledge of things unseen or not? May one believe only in God alone or not? Is God a single unitary being or not? Abelard quotes how the Bible, church councils, the early fathers, and other writers address these questions. He does this not to supply answers, but to demonstrate the contradictions. Following his blueprint, it is up to the reader to critically evaluate the sources and reconcile their differences. These were statements meant to be debated. These were exercises in using logic to reveal the truth. But the truth, the ultimate answer, was to be sussed out by the individual. Abelard wished for men to think for themselves. Abelard's faith was both secular and religious in nature. He saw faith and reason as two roads that ultimately led to the same truth. And this truth was God. Of course, this did not sit well with many of Abelard's contemporaries. Abelard's main opponent was the Cistercian abbot Bernard of Clairvaux. The Cistercians were an offshoot of the Benedictine order, and they wished to return to a stricter adherence to the original orders of St. Benedict. Bernard was a powerful and influential man within the church. Abelard's ideas were not new. What bothered men like Bernard was the non-traditional method of argumentation. Bernard wrote, quote, Virtues and vices are discussed with no trace of moral feelings. The sacraments of the church with no evidence of faith. The mystery of the Holy Trinity with no spirit of humility or sobriety. 
all is presented in a distorted form, introduced in a way different from the one we learned and are used to, end quote. Bernard was a mystic, experiencing ecstasy in the sight of the mystery of faith. Abelard saw a riddle that needed to be solved. Abelard can be seen as being objective, placing distance between himself and the sources. This ran counter to the monastic tradition of venerating the authorities of the church. Bernard of Clairvaux and others like him saw this as a threat to faith. Bernard and Abelard probably met as early as 1125, but the tensions between them became especially heated in 1140, as editor and translator Betty Rides puts it, their conflict was the cause célèbre of the 12th century. Bernard saw Abelard as a heretic, and he helped convene a church council at Sens to investigate Abelard's heretical positions. Abelard appeared in Sens, believing this was to be a debate between scholars. He didn't realize that Bernard had already met with the bishops and lords and got them to agree to condemn Abelard for heresy. This was not a debate, but a trial, a trial whose outcome had already been determined. Abelard refused to participate and headed for Rome to appeal to the Pope. But he found that Bernard had already secured from Pope Innocent II a papal condemnation that bound Abelard to silence. On his way to Rome, Abelard stopped at the great monastery of Cluny, home of the reform movement of the 11th century. Here, he was welcomed by the abbot Peter the Venerable, a man of considerable influence himself and a member of the Benedictine order. He interceded on Abelard's behalf, appealed to the Pope's mercy, and arranged a reconciliation between Abelard and Bernard. Part of this agreement meant Abelard renouncing those parts of his writings that had been deemed heretical. Abelard remained under the protection of the monks of Cluny until he died in 1142. Eventually, he would be buried with his love, Eloise, at the Pierre Lachaise Cemetery in Paris. As the debate between Abelard and Bernard of Clairvaux began heating up, another significant figure entered the picture. Peter Lombard was born in Lovenlongno in the Piedmont of northwestern Italy. The exact date of his birth is unknown, but historians place it between 1095 and 1100. It is believed that he began his studies at the cathedral schools of Novara and Lucca. The bishop of Lucca recommended that he continue to pursue his studies first at Reims and then in Paris. 
He arrived in Paris in 1134 at the urging of none other than Bernard of Clairvaux. There is no documentation of Peter's activities in Paris before 1142. Still, it is surmised that he came in contact with the important teachers of the city, such as Abelard and Hugh of St. Victor, who taught at the school located in the Abbey of St. Victor. Peter Lombard was recognized as a teacher in 1142, and in 1145, he became a magister, professor, at the Cathedral School of Notre Dame. He would eventually be elevated to Bishop of Paris in 1159. Peter Lombard is best known for his Libri Quantor Centarium, the four books of sentences, primarily referred to as simply the sentences. The book was a compilation of passages taken from the Bible, the Holy Fathers, church councils, and the works of other medieval thinkers. These quotes are arranged according to themes, and Peter Lombard provides some commentary and problems that need to be solved. Not the first such work to be done, but his was considered the best, and it would be used as one of the primary texts of theology up until the 16th century. In Lombard's work, we see Abelard's critical analysis method becoming part of classroom learning. The sentences foreshadow the more mature methods of scholasticism. Every problem needs to be analyzed. And that analysis starts with a question, questio, whether X is Y or not. The question gives rise to contradictory answers. The solution is in the distinctio, the distinction between the possible meanings of X. Abelard and Lombard mark a threshold to a new era of learning in the medieval European world. They and their contemporaries were inspired by and influenced by the reemergence of the entirety of Aristotle's works. A contemporary chronicler mentions James, a clerk in Venice, who in 1128 translated directly from the Greek those sections of Aristotle that had not been previously translated into Latin. Other translations or misinterpretations of Aristotle flowed out from the prolific translators of Toledo, Spain. All of this, taken together, would be called the New Logic. And in October 1096, Pope Urban II, speaking at the Council of Clermont, urged all good Christians to embark upon a crusade to free the Holy Land from the Turks. All this would mean a rediscovery of the classical world and a reawakening of European knowledge and learning. This would be important in developing scholasticism 
and humanism and be the impulse for the European Renaissance. Out of Aristotle, there came the refinement of the dialectic, reasoned debate. This had been Abelard's greatest skill. Neither he nor Peter Lombard invented the method that would replace the Lectio. Through their works, they helped establish the disputatio, the disputation as the new standard. The reasoned debate, the dialectic in the form of the disputation, would be the hallmark of scholastic learning. St. Thomas Aquinas will come to represent the height of this scholastic thought, and that is what we will explore further in the next episode. As always, maps and other supporting resources for all episodes are listed in the episode description. In the meantime, for more historical content, please visit the I Take History with My Coffee blog at itakehistory.com and also consider liking the I Take History with My Coffee Facebook page. Feedback and comments are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like this content, please help support my work by buying me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash itakehistory. If you know anyone else who would enjoy this podcast, please let them know. And thanks for listening.